Do we do free valuations for people? Do we do we like to do that? Absolutely, because uh, it, it's our way of a giving back to the entrepreneurial community. It's also our way of educating the entrepreneurial community that your business is valuable and it, it has a certain amount of value, and you should you should do what you can to maximize that value over time. It's it's just good business. You're listening to Ecomonics, a Debutify podcast, your resource for one-of-a-kind insights into the world of e-commerce and business in the modern age. This is Joseph. I'll be presenting a wealth of industry knowledge from interviews with successful business people and our own state-of-the-art research. Your time is valuable, so let's go. Mark Doust of Quiet Like Brokerage opened up my eyes to a whole other realm in the e-commerce world, the business of buying and selling businesses. Thankfully for us, Mark knows full well the trials of our pursuit, and for that reason, his business is geared for our needs. Regardless of what you have in mind, keep, sell, acquire, or leverage, what you'll learn today will come in handy, no doubt about it. Mark Doust, it's good to have you here. Welcome to Ecomonics. Uh, how's it going today? It's going great. Thanks for having me on. Uh, thanks for being here. Uh, I should give credit where it's due. You are the second of two referrals from a previous guest, Stephen Pope. So uh, for, for that, I'm very grateful. And again, just want to let the audience know uh, we're all about that referral. So feel free to, if anybody think, well, for, refer yourself if you haven't uh, uh, considered yourself yet, feel free to come on the show and feel free to tell your friends about it. We're all about growing the show and trying to really get the biggest perspective that we can on the e-commerce world. And we're going to all corners of it. And we're exploring a unique corner today, uh, which uh, Mark is the expert on. Uh, so first question to get us going, as always, is to tell us uh, who you are and what you do. Sure, absolutely. So my name is Mark Doust. I'm the founder of Quiet Light Brokerage. We are a business advisory firm for internet-based businesses uh, and business owners who are looking to exit or be acquired. Um, we've been doing this for 14 years. I started as an entrepreneur in the online world and sold my own business, which opened my eyes to this space at the time. This was, again, 14 years ago, actually 15 years ago that I sold my own business. So for the past 14 years, we've been helping uh, business owners prepare, plan, and execute an exit, um, ideally in a way that benefits them the, in their specific goals, right? Uh, rather than trying to push somebody towards the exit doors, try to help them really identify what those goals are. So we have a tilt towards e-commerce um, that's a little unintentional. We do have a really good SaaS team as well and, and content team uh, that, that uh, can do that. But I'd say right around 65 70% of what we do is in the e-commerce uh, realm. So we have a lot of familiarity with this space. Mm -hmm. And now you said that you had sold your business 15 years ago. Was that also uh, in the e-commerce world or was it? No. My, so my... Yeah, no, my, my uh, it was content. My uh, okay. experience in the uh, e-commerce world, I bought um, five, six years ago now. I, I acquired a group of e-commerce uh, businesses really just to, to get a sense because we were doing a lot of e-commerce uh, here at QuietLight. And uh, I bought it and learned pretty quickly that um, I'm really good at uh, helping people sell their e-commerce businesses, but I have zero desire to run them myself. Mm -hmm. um, it just isn't for me. Uh, the, the logistics aspect of it wasn't re really fun. That that kind of broke me. I'm I'm not uh, I'm not a logistics guy. Um, so I'm, I'm service oriented. That's who I am much more so than uh, some of the other key skill sets that I think play well to an e-commerce business owner. I would bet too, you, you have like an inclination for networking because a lot of what you're doing is you're connecting two different uh, parties together, an interested uh, buyer and an interested seller. And then a lot of these connections are coming through your brokerage. So you're getting an opportunity to meet different parties throughout. Absolutely. So it, it's, it's networking, it's uh, doing deal analysis or business analysis is a big part of it. And then also I think uh, just, just uh, being able to connect people uh, not just making an introduction, but being able to set the parameters for a productive conversation between two people. And I think that's one of the key elements that, that we have done at Quiet Light that, that works, right? Why, why, why do buyers prefer to buy from us? And how does that benefit our clients or sellers at the end of the day? It's because we've been able to normalize these conversations in a way that they're really productive and benefit our clients. I don't want to get too into the weeds on this here, but um, I, having this idea uh, again, this kind of service-oriented approach towards um, what we do—that's that's where my strengths lie. And I think as an entrepreneur, you know, uh, it's important to understand where your strengths lie. I loved the idea of e-commerce for a while until I did it, and then uh, realized 
my goodness, I, w- I was selling uh, these big fire rated uh, safes uh, and uh, locking cabinets. And people were having them delivered to their homes. And we had to count the number of stairs that they were being delivered to. And I was just thinking, this is this is not me. I am not this sort of logistics uh, guy. I, I, it, I can do it. I just don't enjoy it. It was it was a chore, and it was a year of running that business where I was like, I'm I'm done. Uh, it's just not not worth it for me. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, we're, I'm gonna next question I have chambered is to get into how the, how the business model works from the perspective of I'm I'm gonna put myself in the position of a of a buyer, maybe in the position of a seller. But before I do that, I want to know about the the safe store a little bit. So. How exactly did you guys come to decide to uh, deliver safes? Because those are pretty heavy. Yeah, well, I, I didn't. So uh, it okay, was somebody fair, else. Fair. It was, it was a, a woman who came to me to, to sell her business. It was frankly too small for, um, for for our firm, but I was interested in them because it was a small price. It was a good opportunity for me to, to try my hand at e-commerce. And what I really liked about it, it, it had a lot of legacy authority uh, in, in the SERPs, and this was you know, what, uh, five, six years ago, where that was definitely a lot, uh, much more important. Um, still important today, but but back then that was kind of the creme de la creme. And I looked at this and thought, boy, there is there is some raw clay here that I can shape and mold uh, into something really incredible. So that's how I got into that. And yes, you're right. It, they're, they're big, they're heavy. Um, I'll, I'll tell you the first uh, moment I knew I was completely out of my depth, I, I changed to a free shipping model um, because, and, and I figured out all the, all the math, I did everything I needed to do. And then I got my first order and it was somebody in Alaska. And I realized that I did all my <laughs> modeling for the lower 48. And so I had to call the guy and I said, Hey, I I'm sorry. And he just laughed. He said, I thought it was too good to be true. I'm like, yeah, it is. Too, I can't ship you a safe <laughs> to, to Alaska for free, uh, shipping. And the cost was ridiculous. So, uh, yeah, you're right. It, it, it was a pain. Yeah. Um, I, I have to admit, I have a bit of a, I, well, not a bit. I'm, I'm, I'm quite a nerd and I, I have my own like uh, car- cartoonish mind. So I was expecting you to get a customer and be like, yeah, I, I tried to use this to, to catch a roadrunner and uh, <laughs> it just it just didn't drop quickly enough. So, yeah, I mean, it literally it was, it was the, the sort of thing where um, we had to inform our customers, you know, check the safes when they arrive. If, if there's any damage, let us know right away. So they had to check all around because these are big things, right? And they, they, they move around, they knock around, and they can get a chip uh, in the paint. Um, and again, you had to ask, you know, do you have a lifting dock if it's a commercial uh, place? If it's a, if it's a private residence, uh, do you want this brought into your mm-hmm. office? If so, how many stairs do you have? Because we charge <laughs> by, you know, the set of stairs, you know, do you want this door side? And it, it was really, really difficult. Um, I also learned uh, that I have a special uh, hatred for Magento um, as just a platform, <laughs> um, and I'm sure this is just me trying to, to wrestle that, that into shape. But uh, it was it was a good experience, though, on the balance. Again, I ran the business for about a year. I didn't lose money on it, but I, I did end up selling the business a year after because the amount of money I was making on it was not worth the work I was putting into it. Uh, but the education I got in the space was was uh, mm-hmm. phenomenal, um, and it was a really good step in, in my journey as an entrepreneur to again discover you know where are my strengths, what what do I enjoy, what what do, do I not enjoy as well. Mm-hmm. So, good experience overall. Mm-hmm. Okay, I only have one more question for it, and then I promise we'll move on. But were you ever contacted by someone who had their safe broken into? No, thankfully no. no. Okay. No. Okay, so they, so they so they worked. That was that's that's good. No, the safes were great. The safes yeah. were great. But again, it was. It, I'll, I'll tell you. I, I know we want to move on, but uh, another moment that, that I knew I might be in trouble. One of my main vendors and one of my best vendors, frankly, was a guy in New Jersey who would handwrite his invoices to me. I would receive these handwritten invoices in the mail. You know, so it was just, it was a lot of, you know, you think e-commerce, what I love about the idea of e-commerce is you can automate so many things. This Mm -hmm. industry was not automated. Um, There were elements that were, but there were elements that were definitely old school. Uh, And that part of it was kind of fun because, again, this guy in New Jersey was, he was a great advisor for me, really kind of uh, helped me understand the space a bit better. Uh, But uh, in terms of scaling up (laughs) and being able to, to kind of build on top of that, it was it was a task uh, for mm-hmm. sure. Oh, yeah, I, I appreciate his old school approach. It makes me wonder if, like, if he goes uh, retail uh, shopping, he has his own personal credit card machine back in the olden days when they would swipe it back and forth. I, I bet he did actually. I bet he had one of those ones that you know swipe back and forth and like printed out the the credit card number. Um, mm-hmm. I'd be willing he did. 
Can I offer you a drink? Uh, no, I prefer to drink from my own flask. Anyway, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> let's get back to the uh, to, to your to your business. It's um, it's why we're all here. So I, I, I set up the question for you prior, uh, but just to refresh your memory, uh, I want to frame this as how this you know how this works exactly. So I'm looking at a business. I'm interested in buying it. Question B: I'm looking at a selling, interested in selling a business. How does this break down? Well, from the buy side, again, it, it, we have a lot of buyers out there right now looking for e-commerce businesses. Um, to just give you an idea of the numbers, uh, we released a business, a brand, last week. Um, I believe it's slightly over a million dollars for the asking price. Within the first 24 hours, we had over 300 people inquire on that business. We had uh, a little over a dozen conference calls lined up, and we received multiple offers on that business. Now, that's a little bit of an outlier from what we would see on average, mm -hmm. but it gives a sense for the, the buying power that's out there right now and the number of buyers that are out there. So why is that? Um, well, I think buyers are increasingly seeing the e-commerce space as viable and less risky than it's historically been. It, it's a uh, nice return on investment relative to where you're going to see other uh, returns on investment. Um, plus, with the, the virus, with lockdowns, everything else, mm -hmm. the world of e-commerce has only benefited, um, with some few exceptions. Um, whereas um, I was at a, uh, an event a while ago with, which had a bunch of uh, M&A advisors from all different walks of life, and they were talking about the need to normalize for the COVID slump. And in our business, we're having to normalize for the, what we were calling the COVID bump, right? It, we're just mm -hmm. seeing businesses have this massive uptick um, in the e-commerce world. Um, from a, a seller standpoint, um, you know, somebody who's potentially selling, I think the, the takeaway I would start with your audience and uh, with you would be that that uh, most people who are running e-commerce businesses don't really have a concept for what the value of their business might be, right? Mm -hmm. The fact that their business is valuable at all. I think a lot of entrepreneurs, online entrepreneurs, we look at our businesses and we see them as money in, money out. And that's the value that we see. Forgetting that the business itself has uh, asset value. And what I would like to, to compare it to would be a dividend-paying stock, right? So if you uh, play the stock market at all or invest in, in equities, you might buy an equity for $30 a share, $50 a share, $100 a share because it pays a good amount of interest or, or dividends rather on that, that stock. But we don't think of that just in terms of the dividend payouts. We also think about it in terms of the asset value of the, uh, of the equity. Well, the same thing holds true with your business. Your business has asset value. What that is, is, is up for, for question and investigation. Um, and once you start to understand that, once you start to understand that, that the business itself has asset value, you can start to maximize that value. Now, this is important on a few levels. One, if you ever want to sell, which you may not want to, but let's say that you do want to sell someday, or what happens most of the time with our clients is they wake up one morning and they realize that selling is their best option. They had never mm -hmm. planned to do that. They had never planned to sell. But life has a way of changing our desires, our goals, and um, what makes sense today. So if you've paid attention to the asset value of your business, you now have a business that you can sell and, and take some money off the table. Uh, second of all, having a business that is valuable and uh, ha has um, asset value, it's part of your overall net worth picture. And in addition to that, having a business that is valuable is often a really good business to run as well uh, for a lot of variety of reasons. So I've just downloaded quite a bit there. I don't know where you want to take the conversation from here. I want to make sure this is useful for your audience. But um, from the buy side and sell side, you know, people are waking up to the idea that these businesses are valuable in and of themselves and more than just money in, money out machines. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we could take this conversation in a, in a couple of different directions. And one thing to keep in mind with our listeners is that you know we do these episodes for an hour. Uh, but the amount of information that is out there in regards to this far exceeds an hour. So it's always important for listeners to use their discretion and decide if this is something that they want to continue looking into. I, I recommend they do. Um, and I make that recommendation, which basically everybody that we talk to, and I mean it each time. So that's just that's just one important distinction. Um, so yeah, one thing that actually uh, came up, um, and this is not one chambered, but something I, I was wondering about as you're uh, describing, I, I guess what the, the personal experience uh, people are having, they're, they're waking up. There's obviously, there's an emotional side to this too. And I want to frame this in a way that doesn't, I don't want to make, I just don't want anybody to sound like they're being the bad guy in this because you would think that if someone was in a position where they want to sell something and they're almost like they're exhausted by it or, they, or they're emotionally drained by it, 
that might be used as leverage against them. So what do people need to keep in mind to kind of be clear headed about it and make sure that they are making the correct decision when they want to part with their business? Oh, that, that, that's a great question. And Thanks. you're absolutely 100% correct. The emotional side of it plays a big role into it, right? People often sell because they are emotionally done with a business and they realize that they've taken it as far as they want to take it. That might be the most common reason why people sell. And it's something that's kind of difficult for those on the outside to understand because you think you have this great business and we know how hard it is to start a good business. Why would you mm-hmm. ever sell it? That being emotionally done is, uh, is important. Um, is, is what drives a lot of people to, to sell. Uh, I mean, so how do you not have that work against you at the end of the day? I, I think it's kind of where your question is going. How do you make sure that that leverage isn't uh, working against you? And it goes back to what I was saying before. If you understand the asset that, that your business is valuable from an asset standpoint and you work to make it valuable, the market will help prop that value up. The example I gave of, of a business that we, or a brand that we uh, launched uh, for sale a few weeks ago with 300 inquiries in just a short amount of time is an example of that. With multiple offers, we were approaching 10 different offers on that business. Buyers don't have the luxury of knocking down that price because there's other buyers waiting, right? Mm-hmm. You do get sort of an auction effect that starts to take place there, or at least leverage on the sell side. And that's that's important to have. Conversely, if somebody is emotionally done with their business and they either haven't prepared or they wait too long, what can happen is the trends of that business start to suffer. Financials start mm. to go down. The revenues start to go down. The gross profit margins start, start to go down. Uh, they expose themselves to risk. The business becomes less efficient. Whatever the case may be, there's all sorts of things that can start to creep in once that burnout starts to, to creep in. And now you don't get 10 offers. Right, you don't get. You might get three hundred people inquiring, but they won't necessarily be as interested in buying that business. Now, at Quiet Light, what we do quite a bit of is when we look at a business or somebody who comes to us and says, "Hey, I'm thinking about selling," we'll take a look at the business and try and prepare them. Say, "Here's what we think the market's going to do. Here's what we think the value is. More importantly, here's what's really great about your business from an exit standpoint, and what buyers are going to love. And here's what buyers are going to be like. Mm, I don't know about that part of it. Right? That gives the client or the entrepreneur, the business owner, the opportunity to say, I think I want to fix these things. I think I want to fix these things that, that, that maybe buyers are not going to like so that I have more pricing leverage. But the caveat there, the asterisk, is it takes time. And so if you're burnt out, if you're done, and you come to us and, and we say, hey, you know, buyers are going to love these aspects, buyers are going to trip over these things, and it's going to take 10 months for you to work on this. You might have that question of, do I have 10 months, 10 months left in me to, to actually work on this? Do, do I have that energy? Uh, and then you have to, to, to make that, that decision. So there's two questions that, uh, have, that I want to raise uh, based on what you're describing here. And the first one is about being proactive. Let's just say I, you know, I have a business and I, and, I, and I don't actually want to sell it, but I kind of want to antiques roadshow it where I would want to bring it to your attention and just to get a sense of it, is this something that you would be willing to, to do for people to give them an idea of how they can get their business maybe prepped for selling down the line or just out of curiosity? Or do people have to have like a certain commitment level before you are going to? Because it's, it's, your, it's, your, it's your business, right? You do need to keep the lights on. So how do you how do you deal with that situation? No, we, we love to give people a check in value of their, their business. And um, I, I've been very public um, in interviews I've given in the past, and I'll say it right now. People ask me sometimes, when's the best time to sell my business? My answer is never. Ideally, you own your mm-hmm. business for the rest of your life. I, I'm not going to push you to sell your business. It, it's yours. I know how hard it is to run these things. I know how hard it is to get traction. Um, but at the same time, I also now know how important it is to, to know the value of your business. So I'll, I'll ask you this, Joseph. Do, do you sure. know, you don't have to tell me the amount, do you know how much is in your checking account right now? Yeah, I can I can ballpark it. For the record, I I do transfer most of my money into my um, into my savings. Okay, and and again, I don't need to know the specifics. I just just want to go through this exercise because we, okay, we have values over different assets. You know how much is in your savings? Yes, no, you know about that. If you have other assets like a car or a house, you know about what's what's in that. If you have investments, you know basically what the value is there. Do you know how much your business is worth? And when when we go through this exercise with most entrepreneurs. You know, they know how much their their 401k or their retirement account is worth. They know how much their home is worth. They know how much their car is roughly worth. They know how much you know they have in their checking and savings account. But one of the most valuable assets they own, their business, they don't know. 
so just no, uh, this is a long answer to a short question. I apologize mm-hmm. for that. Do we do free valuations for people? Do we do we like to do that? Absolutely, because uh, it's our way of a giving back to the entrepreneurial community. It's also our way of educating the entrepreneurial community that your business is valuable and it, it has a certain amount of value, and you should you should do what you can to maximize that value over time. It's it's just good business. Okay, and then the second question that that I wanted to raise too is if you are able to specify any of the strengths and weaknesses that you have identified and. Uh, the assumption that I'm making is you know, our, our listener base is highly focused on the e-commerce and, and store sector. So I wouldn't want you to answer that question for SAS, but um, have, w- have you noticed any common trends and what are some winning traits and what are some riskier traits, well, I should say? Yeah, so we have a very basic framework that that we use for uh, pretty much every business. And um, I'll, I'll run through the framework uh, quickly with a bent towards e-commerce, right? So uh, we call them the four pillars of value, right? So the four pillars of value are risk, growth, transferability, and documentation. Um, And if we run through these quickly, so let's talk about an e-commerce business. Um, What elements of risk do you have with your e-commerce business? Well, one common one that we look at would be single points of failure or vendor risk, right? Are you too reliant on one vendor? Um, Or or, um, are you not protected from competition? Um, with with what you have, are you too reliant on products that that might be uh, um, not safeguarded from uh, from competition? Other elements that we commonly see in this uh, risk category would be key man risk. The entrepreneur is doing all the work, and they are the the person that really makes the engine run. Um, so that's one element that w- that we look at. Uh, gross profit margins play into that as well. If you have you know really thin gross profit margins, that's an element of risk as well. Uh, so again, on the risk side. Um, single points of failure, too much dependency on one vendor, um, too, too much dependency on unprotected products of some sort, key man risk, gross profit margins. That's just off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. Uh, growth uh, would be the second pillar. Uh, and by the way, risk, obviously, the higher the risk, the lower the price of your business, right? So if we have to discount the business for risk. Growth is um, uh, going to be a positive influence uh, on the value of your business. If we can point to a lot of growth and we look towards historical growth first, it was a business in a growth pattern, but also other patterns within the business. So sometimes we can see businesses where, hey, every time I add a new product line or a new variation or these certain things, my revenue grows by this much, right? So we have a pretty clear uh, product development uh, cycle. We know how to, to build this. We can, we can grow the business this way. We also look at other untapped opportunities, such as uh, maybe you're on Shopify only and you haven't added to Amazon. Is that a possibility? And can we add there or vice versa uh, as well? Um, and, and other channels. The third pillar, transferability. Um, we kind of go back to that risk of key man risk um, or other dependencies or maybe vendors that won't transfer to a no, new owner. But the basic concept here is can a new owner come in and run your business? Yes or no? If, if they can't or if there's a really steep learning curve or it's really difficult to do, that's going to have a negative pressure on the, the, the price of your business. And then finally, the documentation. And we could talk about this one all day. I, I won't because I, I don't want to uh, bore your audience to death. But just having proper finances in place, having a good bookkeeper or CFO. I'm a big advocate of CFOs for larger businesses. Um, making sure that you have your SOPs documented uh, with your business and having making sure that that uh, just the different elements of the business are on paper somewhere or you have recording of, of key metrics. So these four pillars are are. are uh, kind of the basic indicators that we see. The most common problems we see in e-commerce, we have to go to documentation. People are just not keeping their books well or right um, in the correct way. Um, and I know uh, you talked to Tyler Jeffcoat. He's a great resource on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, great guy. He'll get your books in order um, for sure. Um, and the other elements that we see would be uh, not protecting the product lines or being in areas where competition can easily undercut your your main revenue source, which is the products that you have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just had this um, mental uh, fantasy in my head of all of these different um, uh, businesses, such as yours and such as Tyler's, and I almost had this vision of like a of like a digital main street where of somebody can take their 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 portfolio, their their business, and go to all of these different uh, organizations to have different needs met, to have their accounting met, to have their evaluations met, and and I'm just going to stop there because that's just me picturing something very. Um, 
uh, nebulous in my head. Well, um, I, I'll, I'll, I, it's, it's a good thought, and I'm sorry to interrupt, yeah. but it's a good thought because I think with I come from the online entrepreneurial world, right? The first business I started, I coded in my 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 bedroom, <laughs> you know, and I <laughs> I made you know I launched it, and next thing you know, I was making money. So I, I get this idea that we can bootstraps uh, and, and really pull ourselves up by, by our bootstraps and, and get these pretty impressive things started. But there is an entire world of support services out there for businesses that are really, really useful. And so if, if your audience takes one thing away from this, this call or the, this, this podcast episode, it would be to awaken up to some of these services out there and to understand that they do add value. You know, outsource CFOs like, like Tyler's are, are really good. Having a good attorney who can protect some of your intellectual property is really, really important as well. Um, so these outside services, this main street that you talk about, mm. take a walk down it. It's worth taking mm. a walk down it. So of what you brought up uh, out of those pillars, and in, in, interestingly, I did, I did want to uh, say that one of the questions chambered was asked about the four pillars, but we managed to just transition into it organically. So I'm just patting myself on the back for that one. Um, but the key man, that one uh, stuck out to me because that's an issue that I can see myself having. Uh, I don't have uh, an e-commerce store yet, um, but with all these people that I talk to, it is hard to resist that temptation. So with the key man, in specific, if you have like particular stories of this happening, I would like to know is how uh, something like this is resolved, like how someone is able to transfer their their, their knowledge and their skill set to one other person. Do they delegate it so that if one person is doing the job and then they split it into maybe five or six people who can do the job? Uh, so th this one is just something that I would love to know more about if there's anything else you can share on that subject. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it starts with understanding whether or not your skill sets are really unique to you. Right, it kind of starts there, and let's assume that, that mm. they're not, because for the most part, business owners aren't. We, we like to think that we're the best at what we do, um, but oftentimes we're just kind of hitting par, right? Uh, so, um, if if you're replaceable, then it, it becomes a matter of identifying what you do in the business, and that's as easy as journaling <laughs> and putting <laughs> down what am I doing on a day to day basis? What you know, am, am I answering customer service emails? That can be done. Am I doing logistics and ordering inventory? That can be done by somebody else, so on and so forth. So that's where it starts. Is, is if you're replaceable, then document what you do, and then a business can be sold uh, uh, pretty easily with that. Where we run into problems is when an owner has a particular skill uh, or uh, something that is above and beyond. Um, just a replaceable part. Relationships would play a big role in this. Um, I talked to an um, e-commerce uh, business owner who uh, was selling hats. I won't get into the specific type of hats that he had, but he was selling hats. And everything about the way he set up his business was relationship-based. His vendor was a guy that he had known since like high school, mm. right? You know, and, and was getting a sweetheart deal with him. And, you know, uh, he, he had uh, family members running different parts of his business. And he also had just a particular eye for for what he was doing. That becomes a little bit more difficult to replace. Uh, another another example would be um, this was years ago now, six years ago, seven years ago, a company that was selling old software, so outdated software. It sounds a little bit odd, but they would find old seats of of kind of legacy software, and they were they were uh, really good at finding and sourcing these old unused seats. I won't get into the details of the business model because I don't remember specifically. I'd have to go back and research it. But they had a particular skill set in finding these pieces or these old seats. And that was something that wasn't as easy to replace. And, and, and so that, that's where we run into problems, right? Um, so, so what do you do in that case? Um, the, the best situation is if you can bring somebody in and start to train them in what you're doing to be able to show that it can be done by other people. Um, is, is really the advice that, that we give to somebody. Or conversely, you can go into an exit with the understanding that you will stay on board for a period of time um, to be able to train that owner in sort of your, your, your skill sets and apprentice them into that or somebody that they, mm -hmm. they decide to bring on board. Those are really the only options. Key man risk can be a real uh, problem um, with, with uh, businesses if you have a particular skill set that uh, doesn't transfer very well. Yeah. And I'm not asking a question with this, but I just wanted to uh, make a point about it too. It's just because this person, his, his business is hinging on a lot of his personal relationships that he's built over the years. That's a lot of, I, I can see them taking a lot of issue with uh, him or even, even if they don't like have a problem with it, you, you can understand how that might affect his, uh, his friendship with these people or the connection that he has with his family. So yeah, that's, that's something to look out for. Yeah. And I mean, what happens if the buyer that, that comes in doesn't get along with them? 
right? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and then you have to ask yourself, are there backups? You know, when we talk about this risk factor, a lot of it is, do you just have backups? I had a situation where I was selling a business that sold um, uh, mobile cribs for like nurseries, right? And it was a week, about a week before the close, maybe maybe four or five days before the close. We were at the point where we were transitioning vendors. Well, about 80% of the products were being sold from one vendor. And very rare that this happens, but they reached out to the vendor that that uh, they wanted to transition, and that vendor said, yeah, I was actually going to send you an email. Uh, we are discontinuing your program with you. You have to remove our artwork within 48 hours. <laughs> right? <laughs> and so we're like, oh my goodness, this business is destroyed because you know such a large percentage of the sales were coming from this one vendor. So what do we do? Well, that, that business owner had done the right things. He had a backup relationship in place. And so within 48 hours, he had switched over to the, the backup vendor. Now, it wasn't his vendor of choice, but he was able to, uh, to transition to a, th- this other vendor. We delayed the deal by three weeks to be able to see what the numbers looked like, and the numbers sustained really, really well. And so we were able to get that deal done. That saved the deal. His foresight to have a backup vendor uh, made the difference. So um, I went off on a bit of a tangent there, but uh, th- this idea of mitigating your risk with backups is, is one of the key mechanisms that, that uh, uh, we, we preach. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and 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 I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't worry about uh, tangents or anything like that. For me, this is all just uh, new information for me, and I'm hanging on to every word. So if I if I'm enjoying it, I, I expect the same of my audience. Um, I, I do want to uh, shift gears because I, I wanted to ask about the term due diligence in its relation to business. My my guess is over the course of the last half hour, we've managed to dip in and out of it, but I, I want to give it like a specific uh, moment here within our episode is. Because it's given a lot of respect, just from the the sense that I get from having done prep and having a research your and looked at your website, there's there's a lot of credence to the due diligence. So, what is it in relation to your business, and you know how how do you put this in, into practice? Sure, I mean due diligence is just making sure that you're checking everything that you should be checking, right? So for for buyers, um, due diligence comes in two phases. Um, there's discovery due diligence, and then there's verification due diligence. Uh, discovery due diligence is just learning what you need to learn to make a good acquisition or make a good decision. And on the sell side, um, this is you know when you when you talk about the dynamics of a deal, this is areas where things can break down a little bit because as sellers, as business owners, we l- listen to the buyers that are looking at, at acquiring our business, and we often wonder, we're like, why are they asking all these questions? Oh my goodness, how much do you really need to know? Are you thinking about you're going to compete against me? Because I'm telling you everything. From the buyer standpoint, mm-hmm. they're saying. Hey, I'm ready to stroke a check for six figures, seven figures, eight figures. I'm going to know everything about your business before I do that to make sure I don't, you know, lose my <laughs> investment. And so, due diligence comes first in this this discovery phase. And for a buyer, they're trying to learn and absorb everything about your business that you've built up over years of running it, and you've absorbed through living that business. Um, this this institutional knowledge or this experiential knowledge that you gain running your business, a buyer is going to try and absorb as much as they can and hopefully get some insights maybe that you don't have into your business as well to ascertain is this a good investment or not. So that's the first stage um, of, of due diligence. The second stage would be verifying that everything is correct because like it or not, A, not everybody is honest with, with what they represent. Sometimes we kind of tilt facts in our favor but more often than not, where you run into verification issues are just honest mistakes on the part of, uh, of business owners. They think that they've represented something fairly, but the numbers were wrong. Or they think that their books are in order, but they actually forgot about this, that, or the other thing. And so a buyer is going to look at your books. Uh, they'll, they'll take you at your word when they make an offer. But before they write that check, they're going to verify every last bit of the process or every last detail that they've seen and verify that you haven't left anything out you know that that's a big part of this as well it's making sure that that uh, in their discovery they didn't miss something or you haven't been hiding something um, this can set up a tension in the process uh, mm-hmm. it, it, it's it's one of the deal dynamics that that we work at hard uh, and having an intermediary like ourselves um, I often argue where we earn most of our money is in helping bridge this gap and this this disconnect between a buyer and the seller the buyer saying I need to know and the seller saying why do you need to know all this, right? And and how can you bridge that gap? And that that gap is this big kind of amorphous blob of due diligence. But when you break it down, it, it goes into these two simple categories of discovering and then verifying. Mm-hmm. And I imagine too that all it takes is a, is a story or two just to remind people, you know, why, why this is important. You re- 
relates to them. Look, we, you know, let me give you an example of how, and by the way, I don't want to have to get one of those examples out of you, but I can just imagine that you have a lot of evidence to back up the importance of doing this for for the buyers and the sellers. Uh, absolutely. I mean, um, first of all, from the from the sell side, the first thing that that I recommend to my clients, or I try and advise my clients when they're going through this process and they're getting exhausted. And make no mistake, it is exhausting, and the tensions do run high towards the end of, uh, of a lot of deals because <laughs> because you don't want you know again you constantly see the goalpost shifting, or at least that's the, that's the perception, right? I've already answered a hundred questions. Why do I need to answer another fifty, right? It, this and you've already asked for this information, and you're asking for it again. Like what what is going on? Um, so I, I often try and explain to my my sellers a thorough due diligence is good for you because what you don't want is you don't want that buyer three months down the road to have something negative happen with the business and say, hey, you hid this from me. Mm-hmm. You didn't give me enough time or you pushed back when I asked for this information. I think there's something more nefarious here. You get in that situation, now it's messy. Now it's really, really messy. That's much worse than going through kind of a, a painful upfront due diligence. Um, and, and on the buy side, I mean, look, I can point to a lot of examples of uh, people who didn't do their due diligence properly. Uh, who didn't go through and, and uh, check things out. We, we have had situations of dishonesty uh, all the way down to literally forged statements, um, you know, bank statements, literally forged uh, PayPal statements. We've uncovered some of these. Um, Amanda, one of the, the members of my team, she was working on a deal. Uh, it was going to be about four, four and a half million dollars. We were a week away from closing and she called me and she said, Mark, there's something about this that doesn't seem right. And I, we talked a little, about it a little bit. She said, I'm going to just check into a few of these things. And she went in to verify some of the PayPal transactions that were being shown. And we found out that the PayPal transactions were, in, were invalid. You know, you get mm-hmm. that little confirmation number. She called PayPal and said, Can I, I don't need to know everything about this transaction. I just want to know, is this a valid transaction? And they came back and they said, No, this is not a valid transaction on our, on our network. This, this never happened. And so we knew right then and there that these statements were were, uh, were, were manufactured. They were not actually uh, real. That's an extreme example. Um, you know, we, we can look at other examples of, of deals where maybe things weren't really discovered properly, um, and, and it was it was honest uh, mistakes. Um, but you know, these things have consequences for everybody, um, and we don't want to see a buyer lose money. We definitely don't want to see deals go bad after the fact. And so um, that due diligence process is important for everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the uh, the questions that I had uh, a little bit later, uh, a little bit further down the list, was actually because I remember I, w- I was listening to some of your content while I was getting ready for this episode, and and the story that you're telling was in relation to how you guys have this process in place where you take a lot of time and you look through everything and you ask a lot of questions because you figure if you're asking a, a business a hundred questions. After the hundred questions, you have a pretty good sense of their legitimacy versus if you just take people at their word. I mean, that's a big part of it. Yeah. So uh, our process at Quiet Light, our clients, I'd always tell them, right? You know, when they say, "Okay, let's go forward," I always tell them, "I say, okay, there's going to be two points where you hate me. Uh, first <laughs> is about to come up, and then second will be in due diligence." All right. So I'm just going to warn you up front. Yeah, you're going to not like me. And, and, and the upfront portion, why they they don't like us, is, and I say that you know, tongue in cheek. Sure. We sent over a written interview. And this is custom written for every single client. It's not like a standard interview. And that written interview averages 100 to 120 questions. I mean, sometimes as little as 80, but usually 100, 120 questions that you have to provide written responses for. And it's a pain. I mean, I feel for our clients, but there's a point to it. There's a purpose. And one of them is, on my side, I'm vetting that client. I want to see, you know, does this all line up? Is there something uh, fishy here? And once in a while, we do get something where somebody just gives us one sentence answers, and we have to dig deeper. And, and second of all, I want to see how are they going to interact with buyers? Are they forthright with their information? That's another element of it. But uh, on the selling side and creating value for our clients, we also want to answer a buyer's questions before they have a chance to to answer them. Now, there's a dynamic in these these um, uh, transactions in which buyers will come up with questions. And they are both opportunistic, they're seeking opportunity, but they're also risk-averse. And so questions that go unanswered, they will, in their heads, answer in the most pessimistic way possible until they're told otherwise. We want to get ahead of that process. I don't want my buyer to have a negative answer to something that is really inconsequential. So... I will seek out with my clients. I'll seek out the ugly. 
I'll seek out the, the, the bad and I'm going to ask that directly of them. You know, what's going on here? Why did your sales dip here? Or it looks like your gross profit margins are declining or you had these Amazon account suspensions. You go into the detail of this and find out, you know, Mr. Seller, Mr. Client, Mr. Entrepreneur, you've been running this business for three years with these these kind of gross parts or these stinky parts of your business. Mm-hmm. Why are you comfortable running this way? And what happens most of the time is these, these clients come back and say, oh, I'm comfortable with it because of A, B, C, and D. Oh, that's very reasonable. Now, from the buyer standpoint, they take a look at this information. They understand why these risks are allowed to, to be out there. Maybe these risks are not as scary as they might uh, think. The, the the scariest thing in a transaction is the unknown, uh, right? And we want to answer that question. We want to answer that unknown. So, yes, we, we put our clients, part of our process is that upfront uh, work that we do at Quiet Light to really be thorough um, and, and prepare our clients for a whole host of reasons, uh, not uh, the least of which is is our ability to ascertain if this is a good and legit deal. But there's there's a whole host of reasons for that. Mm-hmm. Well, that's uh, sorry, just one second. I, I'm I'm giving my brain a second to to process all of that because that was a lot of uh, fascinating insight into it. And, and one thing that I I have to wonder about too is the is the syntax in if you notice something that looks fishy. How exactly is the best way to approach that when you're talking uh, to the seller? Because you know, I don't know if you would ever want to jump to a conclusion. But you can say, "Hey, look, this looks like uh, uh, this looks like an issue." So, uh, how do you f- find that delicate balance between respecting them but also pointing out that something doesn't look on the level? I mean, it starts with asking questions. Um, I, I dealt with this with a client uh, a few years ago where. Um, you know, I sent out the client interview and then they didn't want to answer the client interview. They sent over their own document. I said, okay, thank you. This is really helpful. Um, uh, you know, I do need this client interview put together. Our buyers expect this and it's, it's a standard format. Um, let me see if I can help you out a little bit with it. And, and, uh, you know, I filled in some, some answers for them saying, please read these over, tell me if they're correct. And then they, they shortened them up. They made them very vague. I said, okay, we need to dig deeper. Mm-hmm. And then, so a, a lot of that, that process, you know, between, if something isn't lining up on our side, obviously I'm not going to jump to the conclusion and say, you're a fraud, you're a criminal, you're trying to rip somebody of off. Of course I won't go there. I will ask more questions. And then when they aren't, when I'm not getting the answers I want, I will try and educate and explain, hey, you know, we, we need to go deeper. And here's why we need to go deeper on this. If, if you don't, then people are going to wonder, you know, what's going on. These buyers have a reasonable expectation to, to having, you know, the, the, the straight answers to these questions. So it goes to education. And after a certain point, <laughs> you know, natural selection happens. If somebody doesn't want to give up that information, that's fine. Uh, and, and look, this is, this is our general stance. It, it's their business. If they are not comfortable giving the information that we're asking them to give, okay, I, I can totally respect that. But I also know how this field works. I know what impact that's going to have on the saleability of your business. And so um, I'll just tell you very honestly, here, here's what the impact is going to be from the buyer standpoint. Um, and if, if you're not okay with that, that, that that's cool too. Um, so what happens eventually is either people give us the right information that we need uh, and the, the right depth of information and, and everything checks out, or it doesn't. And if they're just too shifty on uh, on the questions, they'll, they'll go away. Um, mm-hmm. So fraud, fraudsters, I mean, we... We have been fortunate in the, the uh, quite a while to not have anyone who has been fraudulent. I can't say that we have a hundred percent success rate, especially at the beginning of our, our company, um, as we were learning a lot of this. But it doesn't happen. It's too much work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's too much work for a fraudster to use our to use Quiet Light. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I will say that's the one thing I admire about the position that you're in is because you have your. If there was if there was a more appropriate word than leverage, I would say that, but I'm just gonna have to go with leverage. But you have your yeah, you have your leverage, you have your your history, you have a backlog of uh, of success. I I can see why there's never gonna be any hesitation on your side to do your due diligence, not just to protect you know the the buyer and not to protect the seller, but protect the whole website as a whole. So as far as the motivation goes, there's there there was there's no reason uh there there can't be any anything holding you back. So yeah, I just wanted to say that's one thing I admire about how the business model really protects you and uh, justifies your motivation to uh, to move forward with it. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've built a lot of, uh, we, we've built this business on reputation. Um, everyone that works as a broker at Quiet Light, we're, we're all entrepreneurs. You know, the vast majority of us have bought, sold, and started our own business. That, that plays into a big part of it, right? Because um, I don't work as much on the front lines anymore as uh, as my team. 
but they've been there. You know, they've, they've bought their businesses before. They understand why that buyer is asking those questions. And they've also been on the sell side and they know how frustrating it can be. And so there's a lot of empathy on going both ways there, mm-hmm. uh, but also a hesitancy to take on anything, anything at all that we think is not going to, to pan out because A, we don't want to ruin the reputation that we have. B, again, everyone's entrepreneurs. And one thing you can say about entrepreneurs is we tend to be fairly efficient with our time. We're not going to waste our time with something that's not going to pan out in the marketplace. So if a client, if a, if a seller is not going to be forthright uh, with answers and, and not give enough detail, again, I, I can totally respect that. But I will also be very honest with them and just let them know, hey, this is not going to work. I'm not trying to tell you to do something you don't want to do. But uh, I'm just going to tell you how the market reacts to it. So fortunately, you know, I'll be honest, though, it, it, it's not common. It, it's, not, it's not a, a super uh, major issue that we have. Most people come into this knowing that they have, you know, that they're ready to sell. They've been prepared well uh, to sell. And um, most, the vast majority do a great job uh, with that interview, as painful as it is. So we're, we're getting towards like the final act of a. Uh... Uh, of this discussion, um, this is this is, I guess, more of a personal curiosity of mine. But I, I, I do like the name "quiet light" because uh, it's not a term that I, I don't know, I don't think of it very often, except for those uh, fluorescent lights, which I don't really see anymore. Lights <laughs> tend to not be known for the noise they make. So, is there a story to the origin of the term "quiet light"? Uh, there, there is a story. I mean, I, it works on multiple levels. Um, it's, it's uh, how I see. Well, first, I'll, I'll start with this. It has religious significance. Uh, to it, so that's uh, I was actually in church when I heard the the the, the phrase first uh, stated, and, and um, I, I love the phrase. I think it it signifies quite a bit of where I like our position to be, right? Um, my background before I started Quiet Light was um, going through the sales process myself and having the sense of here's this advisor who has not gone through the pains. He did not stay up late with me as I was building this business. He didn't go through the difficult decisions I made to, to that, that, that got this business where it is. And here I am entrusting him with a big part of, uh, you know, one of the big chapters of this, uh, the life of this business. Um, Quiet Light, one of the, th- the elements behind it is that we're advisors. We're not here to tell anybody what to do with their business. Uh, we're, we're, we're simply advisors. We're going to try and shine a light on the, the process and bring some clarity to this process mm-hmm. for entrepreneurs. But the decision is ultimately yours. And um, one of our core values, one of the key things that we want to recognize all the time is that when somebody entrusts the sale of their business to us, that is something we should A, be honored about, uh, honored by, and that is something that we should uh, have the utmost respect for. The tendency and the, the a criticism that I have of my industry is the commodification of people's businesses, trying to treat them really as inventory as opposed to somebody's effort of labor and love in many cases. We can't lose that sense, I think, as an industry and, and as a company for sure. We can't lose Right, because it's sense. not just, sorry to cut you off, but it's not just transactional. It's also, it's, there's a vision, there's emotion, there is a cause. A lot of, just from my research, you know, a lot of these businesses, they start because people had a desire to solve a problem. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and look, there's a couple of models in our industry, and I won't talk about their efficacy because I, I think they're viable, um, but one of the models yeah. is to, 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 to kind of make the process of selling a business kind of like an assembly line, right? We go through the valuation phase, and then we go through the prep phase, and then you have your person that's going to uh, talk to buyers, yada, yada, yada. And the idea is to scale up and do as much volume as possible. Fair enough. I, I, I'm not going to, again, talk about the efficacy. I think there are there, there's an effectiveness there to it. I highly prefer having somebody who is a skilled entrepreneur and has been through this process before. I want them to walk through with our clients that process, both emotionally, but also as a, a clear advisor during that, that process. So yes, the, the, the name has significance. Um, it, it's, it's indicative of uh, how we see ourselves in the process and really the role that we want to play. Uh, and also the positioning where you know, I will give my clients advice. Sometimes it's hard advice. Sometimes it's advice that's going to encourage them to go a certain direction. But I will never disrespect the fact that it's their business. And even if you come to me and say, hey, look, I want to sell my business. And if I get an offer for $750,000, it's a done deal. And then I get you an offer for 800000 and you come back to me and say, you know, what? I've decided I don't want to take it. Am I going to be disappointed? Yes. But am I going to be mad at you? No, it's your business. You've earned that right to say no. 
<laughs> so I think that's an important <laughs> distinction to have. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to say what movie it was in specific, but I remember my parents had rented this film and, and I'm sitting watching it and I'm, I'm 13 years old. So I'm at like peak cynicism. And I, I, and I think, does this movie really want to be a movie or does this movie just want to win an Oscar? And sometimes I get that vibe from certain movies. And to relate that to this is that have you ever encountered a business where they just it was just made to be sold? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've seen this with with uh, flippers uh, from time to time. Actually, that example I gave of uh, the business where the vendor uh, backed out the week before. Uh, that mm. was a situation where uh, you, you had a buyer who um, they had done this a number of times where they bought a business and he had cleaned up the business. So if we look at those four pillars, he heightened uh, and and uh, maximized the transferability of the business and the documentation of the business. And then he also mitigated a lot of the risk elements to it. He didn't pay as much attention to the growth, although he sustained uh, the growth. But by optimizing those three variables, those, those three pillars, he did a great job of maximizing the value. That business was built mm-hmm. to sell. And, and what he really enjoyed doing, what, what was his passion as an entrepreneur, was cleaning businesses up and streamlining them. So that was his passion. But he, he cleaned it up to sell it. He never intended to run that business for 15, 20 years. He didn't really care about um, changing stations for nurseries. It was more of uh, more of uh, the, the act of cleaning a business up. So we do see that. And there can be some really good businesses there. Not, not every business is a passion business. Not every business sure. should be. I mean, um, you think about some of the really boring niches that are out there. And there are some really boring niches. Um, sometimes people's passion is business. And that's cool, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I see that too in, in some of the fields that people pursue. Like when people get into, say, IT, something that I can never get into, but they just have that knack for it. And and I have nothing but admiration and respect for that. Yeah, I, I, same here. I mean, I couldn't do it uh, myself. Uh, but there, again, there there are a lot of people out there, though, that they just enjoy the, the act of business and they're, they're fairly product agnostic. Um, and that's fine. I, I, I love it. I love watching these people. I, I had a client, <laughs> a client a few years ago who was selling glow sticks and I mean, he was like, I'm at a massive rate. Um, and he was a logistics genius. Logistics is, is something that I can't stand. I mean, I would, there were so many things I'd rather do that than logistics, but he told me he had to move from a uh, 7,000 square foot warehouse to a 20,000 square foot warehouse during this growth cycle. And he told me, he said, oh, that was one of my favorite moments as an entrepreneur. And I'm like, really? Moving a 6,000-foot foot warehouse to a 20, that, that was fun? That sounds to me, oh, oh no, never. But that was, that was his passion. He loved doing it. He loved getting in the spreadsheet. He loved figuring those, those puzzles out. More power to him. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll, I'll say that one of the things that I, that I absolutely love, too, um, uh, when I do editing is when I'm going back to the audio and I'm almost truly seeing it like a game in my head where I can notice people's verbal patterns and find ways to reduce them so that uh, they, they sound a little bit on the outside. Not a lot of people have the patience for that, but I do. And, and yeah, I, I just, I feel that same way. I, I just enjoy the heck out of that. You know, one of my, one of my spiritual beliefs is that, you know, we're born for the time we're meant to be in. And so for, for somebody to have that passion for <laughs> going from a 7,000 square foot warehouse to a, a what is it, 20,000 square foot warehouse for glow sticks? Yeah, him in the 1600s, I don't know. But him in this time, <laughs> makes it makes perfect sense. Absolutely. Um, I, I got to get I, I gotta get a question in for our for our drop shipping peeps. Um, and I think by, by now, we've provided enough info that we can kind of glean what the answer is. But let's just make sure that we... Let's just make sure that we focus on it for a moment. Um, can you lay out a, a roadmap for a dropship-based operation to become sellable? And someone who's like getting their stuff from Alibaba and they found their winning products and maybe they don't picture they're going to sell it just yet, but a year, two years go down the line and it's, yeah. Yeah, so the number one problem, and again, look, the, the process of preparing a business for sale is often about solving the, the, the major problems that you have. So I don't want to sit here and rag on dropshipping as a bad business model. It's not. Um, we released a dropshipping business uh, for sale uh, three or four weeks ago and went under offer within a few days. So dropshipping businesses can certainly be sellable. The one thing you need to guard against, though, is um, the, the lack of defensibility of many dropshipping businesses. If you're ordering products, for example, from Alibaba, um, where you eventually want to be with a dropshipping business is having product lines where you either have exclusivity or there's definitely limits on who can sell that product, uh, or what you have is somewhat unique. So uh, I'll use the, um, the the example of the safes that, that I was selling. 
Um, that was drop shipping because who in their right mind would ever inventory safes, uh, you know, big old gun safes and stuff like that, or big old file cabinets. Nobody, right? It's just, it, it doesn't make sense. So where was the advantage that I could have? The advantage that I could have was in negotiating better rates. It was in my product selection. It was in uh, the ability to find the products on the website that I had. Um, finding these other ways to distinguish yourselves from competition so that it's not just a race to the bottom price-wise. And that's the problem that you have with, with dropshipping. It's often a race mm-hmm. to the bottom with price. You might find a good vein of products that you can make a profit on. But once that gets discovered by other people, they're going to come in and they're going to sell the same products and they're going to sell it for a little bit cheaper and then you're going to sell a little bit cheaper and then you're going to run into map pricing and then you're going to have those stupid little things saying click here to see the price. You know, it's that you're, you're, you're abiding by map price. If your competitive edge is just a race to the bottom, it's going to be difficult to sell. Buyers know what happens next. So it's all about the defensibility of what you built um, and, and trying to set that up uh, so that somebody looking to make an investment and pay a multiple of your year's worth of earnings can look at that and say, I, I, I can make business uh, money on this business for the next three, four, five, ten 10 years because they've done a great job uh, specializing in XYZ. Uh, furniture businesses are classic examples. So, uh, I've seen furniture businesses that specialize in just modern furniture, right? And so that's kind of their appeal. We have a really nice, unique selection of furniture, and we've gone out. We're finding uh, products that are kind of exclusive to us or very hard to find. So that, that that's where you want to find your protection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also too, um, one of the recurring themes throughout talking to a lot of dropshippers is that. Dropshipping tends to, and you know, feel free to uh, write in and prove me wrong, podcast.debeautify.com, but it tends to be um, them mining the raw resource. And then once they've gotten that, they branch out and they find different uses for it. And if they want to involve their business, they tend to move towards uh, white labeling or they even move towards uh, self-manufacturing, having their own distribution. So uh, so, th- so, that, so that's key to the, to the roadmap as well, is that for your own sake, you know, you do want to put your business into a more stable position first because drop shipping does tend to be like like a gold rush like you say it's yeah you can you can get a winning product but then other people are going to head in they have, they got their pick pickaxes their dnt and they're ready to go as well yeah i think where, where drop shipping can be really really valuable is it's it's the the low cost of entry to find uh what the market wants uh but then from there um i i do think I didn't want to go here because I, I don't want to discourage dropshipping necessarily, but I do think one of the best paths that you can take is when you find that vein of products, that niche that that plays really well, find out why it pay, plays really well, and then maybe move to private labeling, but then even evolve a little bit beyond that to say, um, okay, we're private labeling. We know that customers really like X, Y, and Z about our business, but uh, they have a problem with A and B. So let's mm-hmm. let's iterate on this and let's create something that nobody else has. And, and now you're in a position where you have a very unique product that's super defensible. That's kind of the creme de la creme of, of what we're looking for in e-commerce, what buyers are looking for. Um, again, you can you can sell things that that um, in a dropshipping model and still have a very defensible business. Furniture is a great example of that, right? You're not going to necessarily create your own furniture lines, um, so it's, it's not always possible with every with, with every vertical. But if if you're selling smaller products and, and you're using it as that that market discovery option. Uh, iterating is a great option. It's it's a really good way to to build out a business that is highly sellable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and thank you for your discretion as well, because you said you didn't really want to go here. But uh, as a motif on the show is that we've talked to some people who are pretty pretty darn honest, um, honest are pretty darn honest about this, and so it's more important that we get to, get to that because we don't want there to be any illusions about uh, what goes on in the business. So so for that, I, I just want to uh, give you my my thanks. Um, also again, cause you brought up the safe that just opened up my, my cartoon mind again, just the idea of like a, of a, of a robber breaking into a warehouse and seeing it's a warehouse full of safes. Just, uh, <laughs> you have no idea how glad I am to be done with that business. <laughs> I'll try to ballpark it. And that's as, as, as far as I can go. Um, Okay, so so this one initially, my first draft of this question was uh, a lot more tongue in cheek than it is now. But I'm trying to exercise restraint, which is if I could just use Afterpay to buy a business in increments, and that's ridiculous. But um, is it actually possible to make a uh, agreement to uh, pay a purchase down over time, or does it have to be an upfront transaction? Yeah, that's a good question. So seller financing is is um, 
what you're getting at here, will a seller finance the purchase of their own business? Um, maybe a small portion, typically no, um, because why would you? Uh, again, we're looking at this in terms of you have a business that's an asset, it's worth money, and that that asset generates money for you. So you can continue to own that business uh, asset, which is valuable, that's generating money for you on a kind of infinite basis. You don't know when that's going to end. Or you can take seller financing, which is now you paying me money on a monthly basis, and that's going to end someday. And I lose the value of the asset of the business. It doesn't make a lot of sense to do that. Um, however, from a buy side, what you can do and what a lot of buyers are doing is they're using SBA loans um, to finance a purchase, and that effectively does the same thing, or other private loans as well. right? So if, if you were to, to get an SBA loan, you need to put down 10 to 20% of the purchase price, and then the, the rest is financed over 10 years at a pretty friendly interest rate. That's a great way to do it. Um, again, sometimes you do see some seller financing, but it's usually maybe 20% of the deal. Um, and uh, remember the whole market leverage that I talked about at the beginning of the, the, the episode? That's a real thing as well. I mean, if you come in and say, hey, I love your business and you're uh, wanting to sell for $500,000, i will pay you $700,000, but I'll be paying it over the next 10 years. Well, that that uh, seller is going to look at that and they're going to see another offer that says, you know, here's here's five hundred thousand dollars cash tomorrow. Right. Upfront, yeah, yeah. I'll take that. <laughs> right. So, yeah, yeah, it's it's it's, it's an ante. Like you have to uh, meet the ante. Exactly. That makes that makes sense. Yep. Yeah. And then this is another um, intrigue question. Is there an equivalent to this, but on a smaller scale? Like, do people ever uh, sell businesses that are valued at like 1K, 2K? Yeah. So if somebody wants to get into more of like an entry-level business uh, buying and selling? Absolutely. Uh, Flippa, um, you know, you have to wade through some of the stuff that's not uh, necessarily high quality there, but uh, Flippa is a good place to go for smaller sites. The one thing I would just advise, though, is that the dynamics of uh, buying a business, say, sub $100,000 in value and above $100,000, Pretty different. Uh, just when you're buying something that small, it's. I'm not sure if we could say it's a full-on business at that point. It's really just a concept uh, that might have some promise. Um, and um, when you're buying larger, uh, if, if you're looking to just get your feet wet and, and experiment, this is what I did with the safe business. That was twenty-five, thirty thousand, I think. That's why I paid for that. You know, it's, it's a great opportunity, but, but you're buying an education. Uh, and, and maybe something that can grow into something bigger. Uh, but a lot of our buyers that are doing seven and eight-figure deals now. They started out doing small deals uh, just just to get their feet wet and, and uh, mm -hmm. discover and learn. So it's it's a great way to get into it. Yeah, I, I have some uh, some entrepreneurial friends of mine who are going to be really uh, pleased to to hear that. But it is important to note that it's it's the it's more it's more the education. Um, and one of my philosophies is that I, I do think it's good to be small before you be big because you can learn a lot more in the small. And so any mistake that happens when you get big will be amplified. We're getting pretty well. I it's almost time to to, to wrap this up. Um, so I'm just going to uh, ask you one more question, and then we'll do, and then we'll get our parting words of wisdom, and we'll let you go. Uh, so let's just say I, I was looking at the website, and so let's just say I wanted the the low carb and keto uh, fulfillment by Amazon supplement business with uh, 23 percent recurring revenue. Now I suppose this is a case by case basis, but can I go in and rebrand it, or are there any stipulations to the legacy of the operation that I have to respect? Once you buy the business, it's yours to do with as you want, right? So right. If, if you buy that business and you want to rebrand, have at it. Um, on occasion, you will have a seller who has certain requests, but it'd be very hard for them to um, to, to to have anything contractually. Most of the time, where you would see, uh, trying to think of an example where you might see a request that would uh, bind you after the fact, maybe with staff or employees or you know uh, anyone that they're taking care of, say so make sure you take care of them for at least six months or a year or what have you. For the most part, once you're done, uh, you know, once you close on the business, you, you can do what you want with that business. It's it's yours. Okay, fair enough. Although even as I was saying that out loud, that's when I realized that it might not be in the best interest to do that because of brand recognition. If you just uh, go in and suddenly change it, yeah, to I wouldn't charge keys or something. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, usually, yeah. so if you're if you're on the buy side, typically what you want to do is keep things exactly as they are at least for the first few months, right? Um, because you need to learn that business. E even though you've gone through an extensive due diligence process, you've discovered things, you've asked a ton of questions, you're still going to learn by doing. And learning by doing is, is the most effective thing. Um, give yourself at least three months of, of learning and understanding that business. And the nuances that you didn't pick up on, and the questions that maybe you should have asked that you didn't ask, and you'd be surprised that they're, they're out there. Um, even mm -hmm. though you think you've asked everything under the sun, that you're going to find something after that you should have asked about. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Uh, yeah, so that, that definitely got that curiosity uh, satiated and then some. 
we're we're good to go. This has been uh, an excellent talk. I've I've learned a lot today, and I really want to thank you for your time. Um, so the last thing to do, give you the floor once more, is if you have any parting words of wisdom, anything you just want to impart uh, on uh, on our audience. Uh, not that you haven't already given us plenty already, but just in case. And then let us know how to reach out to you and uh, take it from there. Yeah. Uh, parting words of wisdom would be just start to learn about this space. Um, you don't need to ever have in your mind that I'm ever going to sell my business. That, that doesn't have to be part of the equation. That's not the impetus that I think you should have to say, how much is my business worth? It's good to know in and of its own right. A business that is good to sell is typically a business that's good to own. And so by just going through this process, you're going to learn a lot about what you can do to improve your business. Um, if you have a business that is established and uh, generating revenue and you want to get that valuation, it's a super insightful uh, experience. I would highly recommend doing so. If you're towards the beginning or if you don't like to talk to people because you know it's a waste of time or you know that's the way you feel about things, um, I put together a course on this called How to Sell a Business for Six, Seven, or Eight Figures. Um, you can find it at courses.quietlightbrokerage.com. It's free. I don't charge for it. But I go over all the dynamics of the four pillars of value, but also the other elements of the financial side, why that's important and how to, to get that in order. So I would say learn learn about the, uh, the this uh, field. Um, we have a podcast, the Quiet Light Podcast. We go over a lot of this stuff as well. Uh, so that might be another element. To get in touch with me, if people have any questions, just mark, M-A-R-K, at quietlightbrokerage.com. Happy to talk to anyone who has any questions uh, about anything mentioned in this podcast or outside of it. Um, but other than that, uh, you know, just, just thank you for having me on. It's been a lot of fun. I th thank you for being here. I, I, I agree completely. All right, everybody, uh, that has been another episode of Ecomonics. We'll check in with you soon. Take care. Thanks for listening. You might have found this show on any number of platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or right here on Debutify. Whatever the case, if you enjoy this content and want to help us thrive, please take a few moments to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you think is best. We also want to hear from you, so whether you think you'd be a good guest or want to weigh in on anything related to our show, you can email podcast at debutify.com or connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Finally, this podcast is created by the passionate team at Debutify. If you're ready to take the plunge into e-commerce or are looking to up your game, head over to debutify.com and see how it can change your life and the lives of many through what you do next. <laughs>